Hello and welcome to another episode in the Super Learning Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dan Collison. Uh, Dan is a retired doctor and a medical professor. His specialty was uh, skin cancer treatment and uh, reconstruction. And he also writes about the intersection of science, humanities and tech, which are some of his lifelong interests that informed his medical and uh, teaching career. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. I've been looking forward to talking with you ever since we were in the uh, ODCC course together. Yeah, because I remember very well in the ODCC course, you were always the one who, whenever a, a word came up, you would have the whole etymology ready and uh, know where the word comes from, what it means and what it used to mean. So maybe we could just start off there. Like, how do you get interested in that kind of stuff? And how do you remember all of those uh, patients? Sure. Um, part of that ba is based on the fact that I, I tend to think of culture, including language, as being basically a treasure house of knowledge and a shortcut to learning. Because when you think of it, or the way I think of it, is that if we bothered to make a word for it, it probably has to do with the fact that it was an important concept or an important idea or it had some utility. So it's a bit of a Lindy sort of approach that I have that if something has been around for a long time, it's probably because it's useful. So, But also things change over time. So that's why it's fun, you know, when we talk about a word the way it's used now to see how that use has changed over time because that can give you a little bit of insight as well. Yes, yeah, so I definitely agree. Like if somebody just had an idea and then there was a, a word coined for it and the idea kind of continues to live in the word. Yes, and then just like as in programming languages, there comes a situation where a fork occurs. Like So there are certain words that are just so ancient that they have actually generated dozens and scores of words over time as the situations uh, change. So, yeah, it's largely utility in general right. as an indicator of where the riches are buried. Right. Do you have an example of such a word? It's sparked off loads of different words in there. So I tweeted about this yesterday, and I was looking at a poem by Robert Frost. He's famous in the in the U.S., where I live. I, I live north of Boston in New Hampshire. And Robert Frost actually went to college in the town I live in, or he started college there. And I was looking at one of his poems. And he used a, an interesting word, which was the word provide. Right. And so he repeated the word twice. The last two words of this poem, and the first two words, so they were both in the title, and they are in the last two words. And with someone as careful as a poet, you know, poems are so condensed that every word counts. That's one of my go-tos as uh, an example of a go-to where someone in culture, in this case a poet, is trying to tell you where the bones are buried. So I looked up the word provide, and it actually comes from two ancient words. Pro means forward, like in front of you. And videre is a Latin word that means to look at. So basically, when you provide something, you're actually thinking about provisioning. So there you right. see the word right. again. So you're having the foresight to set aside resources. And that's a provision. 
the poem itself, in typical Frost fashion, flipped that on its head. And that's another interesting thing about good teachers is sometimes they don't come out and say what they want to say directly. They usually make you dig for the treasure a little bit. So, But in this case, the word provision was Frost telling us to look at the history of this word because this poem may not be about what you think it is. Right. That's, that's so. fascinating. <laughs> and I, I know you know like the etymology of a lot of those words. And I was wondering, how do you remember all of those? And, and maybe does the story behind it help you remember them? And do you use that in other fields as well? So I have several approaches to that. There are certain words that are so important to me that I do have them memorized. And by the way, Dom, two days ago, I, I learned about this tier ranking system. Do you use that rubric of S, A, B, C, D? Do you know about that rubric of ranking the importance of a topic or an issue? It's from the gaming community. And I, I learned it from an Abdi Abdal YouTube that I saw three days ago. But anyway, there are certain words that are indispensable to me, such as the word, I'm in a medical, I'm a doctor. The word compassion has right. fascinated me over the years. The difference between compassion and empathy and sympathy. There's actually fine distinctions between those words. So a really important word, either for my interest or my field, I have those memorized. But then others I keep in a, in a, a running list. I use a note-taking software called Workflowy, which is a little bit obscure or, or a little bit long and uh, a little bit old-fashioned compared to some note-taking apps. But I have a running list of A and B level words that I don't have memorized, but that I refer to enough that I keep them there. And then, of course, the other way is I use the internet instantly to look up these words. And I use a resource called Etym Online, which is an online etymological dictionary. And by the way, I also use that when I'm uh, learning a foreign language. I was taking a crash course on uh, Spanish in May and June, and looking up the etymology of important words in Spanish was also very helpful for me to learn Spanish. Yeah, I imagine that. And I imagine since you have probably a deep knowledge of Latin as well from your medical expertise, like has that helped you learn Spanish faster as well? Absolutely. And that's a good segue as to one of the most useful things I did when I started in medical school, and that is that I looked up the etymology of every single new word. So at the beginning, it was quite a task because most of the words, or a lot of the words were new. But once I learned the root, then it was easier from then on. I'll give you an example. Do you know the word hysteria? Yeah. Do you know where that comes from? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, I'll give you another clue. Hysterectomy. So hysteros is the Greek word for uterus. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is a great example of how meanings change over, over time and how we learn as cultures as well. Sort of the, the emotional state known as hysteria was formerly thought 
to be related to the uterus being out of kilter. And it's a pejorative now to to think that being emotionally excited, number one, is limited to women, and number two, to blame it on an organ. That's not good form to think in that way. But that's just an example about how once I learn the word for a uterus, like in hysterectomy, then I saw that it also applied to, to other words like hysteroscope, hysteria, and so forth. Right. And so this kind of system that you developed to, to remember the, the roots and et etymology of words has helped you in your further learning journey or like yeah, just tell me a bit more about your, your journey to get to this medical expertise and then the teaching expertise and everything that, that came after that. So I'll segue that into another technique I use for learning. So first there is just the literal use of, okay, I'm going to word roots of Latin and Greek, which provides a lot of the medical vocabulary. But then over the years, I've taken it up to one other level where I think of culture in general as anytime you see something being reused by culture, that's a sign that it might be an important concept. And then when I'm teaching people, so just like in teachers and doctors are very similar in that they adjust the treatment or the learning method to either the patient or the student, right? So I might appeal to the practical person by saying, hey, if you learn this one word once, then it's going to be useful in the future. Or for a person who's more philosophical or process oriented, I say, hey, notice this pattern here. If you look to culture, then you can apply that to detecting other patterns of culture or other ways that culture preserves what's important. And then you think, okay, culture must be a technology for how information, how behaviors are both taught and how they're coordinated. And so mm. basically, you first see the instance, such as the word hysterectomy, and then you see the pattern. Ah, hystero is not just used in that word, but several. And then you realize, oh, gosh, that method of remixing words and word roots over the years is the same as the way that hip-hop uses samples. Mm. And then you start seeing cultural patterns used in a variety of culture, whether it's music culture, and in my case, the culture of medicine, the culture of science. All of these things tend to borrow from both the past uses, but also from, from adjacent fields. So you go from the instance to the pattern, where you do notice a pattern between two different fields. And then you say, hey, what if we use this pattern from two non-adjacent fields and, and see if they, to see if they apply to uh, a previously unused field? Right. Okay. So, yeah, you take like successful patterns, which you determine based on, on like repetition and reuse in, in culture, and then you can try to, to recombine them almost. Yes. And to see if there's either similar patterns, it doesn't have to be the same. It can just, to use a metaphor, it can just rhyme. Right. And so like in medicine, especially now, like 
knowledge and information, it's, it's increasing at a very fast pace. Like, how does how do those techniques help you to, to choose like what to keep track of and maybe what not to pursue further? So that's a really good question because I went to medical school between 35 and 40 years ago. A lot has changed since then. 50 years ago, you could memorize all of medicine and even maybe even 120 years ago. But even since then, even in the past 35, 40 years, the way we learn medicine, the way we use medical knowledge has and is undergoing uh, tremendous change. But at the same time, you don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. There's part of medicine that won't change, hasn't changed. And for instance, the compassion that I was uh, referring to, the, the tailoring of the treatment to the patient, that will never change. But the way we access medical knowledge has changed tremendously. One thing I did as a resident in medical training was I wrote papers. And then you'll like this one, Dom. It just reminds me of a, of a story. One of the reasons you learn something is to pass credentialing tests, right? Yeah. So, And that's a big deal in medicine, passing credentialing tests. So a friend and I started to build a sort of a master list of a subset of diseases that were genetic diseases of the skin. And, you know, first it was 10 pages, then 50 pages, then 80 pages. And then we thought, this is getting to be pretty large. And we decided to see if we could get it published. And so we wrote up a book proposal and the the publisher said maybe if you can improve it here and then we thought okay i noticed one of your recent topics was ask who not how mm, yeah right yeah, so yeah. yeah so what we did is we decided to recruit the two most senior people in this field of genetic dermatology and <laughs> We didn't know any better. We were just kids, so to speak, in our fields. But by a miracle, they accepted. And we got our contract and we published a 700-page book. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. And so that reminds me, I don't know who said this, but sometimes like <laughs> being naive can almost be like a superpower. I absolutely agree. Beginner's mind is a, a mm. wonderful thing to have. Henry, as you know, Henry Ford the industrialist, he supposedly only hired young engineers because they weren't experienced enough to know that what he was asking of them was impossible. <laughs> they, just, they just said, oh, okay, we'll do it. So yeah, my colleague Fred and I were definitely part of that. By the way, you know, I know you and Ryan have been collaborating, right? So collaboration is just talk about superpower. That's being able to collaborate is a, a superpower for learning. And, and my colleague, Fred, and I, we not only learned so much from each other, but we, you know, we enjoyed the, you know, hundreds and probably thousands of hours that we actually spent literally side by side working on this textbook. 
And Dom, I admire what you do because back in that day, back when I was a dermatology resident, I was a self-taught programmer. And there used to be a program for the Macintosh called HyperCard. And I taught myself a ton of programming in order to build a database to make this textbook and format it in a certain way. But back in that day, we had 300 and 1200 baud modems. I also had to do it in such a way that I could generate an ASCII file to send to my colleague, Fred, so that he could upload it into his HyperCard program and he could edit it. So one really neat thing about choosing a big hairy project mm. is that it invites you, number one, to collaborate. That's how we got those two senior co-authors to work with us. But it also, number two, it inspires you to get better at other tools. Yeah, definitely. Like having a purpose just makes you learn so much faster and makes you more determined and like almost get to that learning dip. And now I have a name for that. I had skin in the game. You yes. know, once you have skin in the game, boy, it, it really makes you concentrate and it makes you take on tasks that you otherwise uh, would not. Yeah, definitely. And, and maybe in this whole learning journey, what would you say has been your biggest learning challenge and how did you overcome that? That is a really good question. And it has to do with, I was not very good at switching roles according to my context. I'll give you an example of that. So basically I was in a field where I had to be extremely careful with number one, my surgical technique, but even more importantly, actually, it, it was my ability to determine whether the cancer was completely removed. And for that skill, I needed to be good at microscopy and pathology. Part of my surgical process was looking at all of the edges of the tissue that I removed to make sure that the edges were cancer-free. So once the tissue was removed, I had my technician process 3D edge of the entire specimen. And then I would look at the edges through a microscope, slides obviously, to, to make sure there was no cancers. So that's a role, you know, being in the doctor role requires you to be just sort of really OCD, really obsessive and compulsive and conscientious. And that was great. That was a great trait to have for that role. But the mistake I did, Dom, was I would apply that to where it is not useful. And I'll give you an example from my recent effort to learn Spanish and to speak Spanish. I was so cautious about speaking Spanish Spanish that I would hardly say anything because uh. I wanted to be perfect. That, that was my go-to trait was to just be, okay, it has to be in perfect grammar, perfect word choice. I can't use a baby word. I have to use a, a more sophisticated word. And when I went to Mexico, it was very frustrating because I wasn't using my language. And I was traveling with two brothers my wife and I were traveling, so there were three brothers and and, and their wives. Right. So there were the six of us. We were all traveling together. 
and I saw that my older brother was speaking very broken Spanish with a terrible accent, but having a great yeah. and it made me mad. And so I asked my younger brother, by the way, I have 10 brothers and sisters. I said, how can I get about this? And he says, hey, just remember, it's about connecting. And then I just had that aha moment. And yeah. then I dropped the perfection, trying to be perfect role yeah. or trait, because I had a different role. I was I was not here to be a careful doctor. I was here to be just yeah. a regular, just talking. So, and that made a huge difference in my learning of Spanish and my getting better at speaking ever since. Yeah, definitely. Like choosing the right role and maybe related to that, what what you mentioned is also, I think, different types of intelligence, right? Like we, we talked about your medical intelligence, language learning, and then you, we were talking about you also training for marathon and, and running. So tell me a bit more about those those different types of intelligence. So I've learned that I had a had an intelligence for distance running when I was, I don't know, a, a 12-year-old boy or so. I used to have paper routes, delivering papers door-to-door, and my neighborhood was very hilly, and the roads didn't connect. They were all curvy and loops and circles. So, But I was simultaneously efficiency-oriented, and also, I won't say lazy, it's related to uh, efficiency. I just wanted to get it over with so that I could watch cartoons or, or play. So yeah. I ran the bit by bit. I started running the paper route, and, and I got good at distance running. And then I tried out for the uh, track team or the cross-country team, and in my class of 200 freshmen, I was one of only two boys to win a varsity letter, to be on the varsity team. And so that was a, a shock to me that because to that point I knew myself as a bookworm, sort of intellectual person. So it shocked me that I could be good at something physical, that I could develop a, an intelligence physically. And, and I've enjoyed physical things ever since. And I've hired coaches to help me get better at running, etc. And it helped me. I gave running up for 20 years. And then when I was in my early middle age, 38, 39, I started to get back into it. And it literally revived, <laughs> revived my life. And so I just wanted to tie this in to to one more learning story. I was in a personal development workshop. There was a cohort about 30 people and we had 30 senior, we had 30 sort of teaching assistants who had previously gone to the training. And the whole thing was led by this guy who was sort of a guru. He was a guy in his uh, mid seventies. And this is about 18 years ago, Dom. But this was this was what we would now call cohort training, and it had a constraint where it was all done over three and a half days on a weekend. And one of the other constraints that they applied, you may have heard of this. There's some abusive versions of this that you may have heard about, like you know, I hope I'm not saying 
I hope I'm not insulting anyone, but there are abusive uh, or manip manipulative versions of personal development training, but this one was a, a really good one. Anyway, one of the things that, by the way, over the course of that weekend, the structure of the course was meant to apply to various intelligences, the mm. uh, linguistic intelligence, social intelligence, intellectual intelligence, the intelligence of just what I call mammal intelligence, where you're just side by side packed in with people and you're eating with them. And, you know, you don't even have to use language to benefit from that sort of intelligence. But anyway, what would happen was that people would get up in this, every so often the, the master, he called himself a director. We might call him a facilitator using some of our other language. And all of those have, by the way, very interesting etymologies. Anyway, we would all be in a U-shaped arc in, in folding chairs facing each other. And if you can imagine, right at the very top of the yeah. U in this center was the guru, the director. And he sat like that statue of Abraham Lincoln almost. And he would just be open for your questions. And someone would have the courage to get up and explain what their issue was. For one gentleman, it was one memorable gentleman. He was about 78. He said that his every afternoon, his wife, who had just died a year earlier, would come to him in his thoughts, in spirit, and it really was disturbing to him. And I, I, I can go into that. It's a really good story. But then I shared my question, and guess what? I used words, and I used language to describe what my dilemma was, and it was a yeah. relation dilemma. And he made one suggestion, and I replied with a, yeah, but, because yeah. I'm used to getting my way through language, right? Or it wouldn't surprise you that, that way. But anyway, then he said, well, Daniel, you are really, he didn't say screwed. He used a more dignified word. <laughs> he didn't say you're in a pickle, but he said, you're really stuck. Yeah. And then he said, so notice that's a physical word. And then he says, now stand up. I want you to lie down here. And this is in front of 60 people. He says, lie down. And then he said, Joe, Bill, I want you to come over here. Joe, and lie down to the side of Dan. Now, Roger and Steve, lie down on top of Dan. And um, he said, okay. And these were, Roger and Steve were big guys. He leaned down. So he had this theatrical presence. But then he did something very interesting. He leaned down and he said to me, can you breathe? And he just used a, a normal voice. Yeah, I can breathe. Okay. He says, Dan. Then he got back into his persona. He says, Dan, I'd like you to get up. And I made some half, sort of half-hearted efforts. 
yeah. and then I said I couldn't get up. go ahead get up and then I said Steve Roger would you move and then he said Steve Roger don't move and I literally Dom I was there for about another 70 seconds the room was totally quiet and I was just there trying to th think my way out of this and then I finally you've probably jumped to the conclusion I finally just struggled the only way that he could reach me was through my body because my linguistic skills and my thinking skills yeah. talked my way <laughs> out of this and so it was just a wonderful insight to me that that hey if I'm stymied by my linguistic and my verbal and my intellectual facilities try a different intelligence and yeah. as a really good teacher he read me within seconds both through the I think that was like the second day of the workshop he had seen me he'd seen my style and it's just a great example of how a good teacher will reach a student through a variety of intelligences and sometimes you'll actually not go through the a student's main intelligence but through one of their auxiliary I won't even call them minor I'll just call it an auxiliary intelligence yeah it's a wonderful learning story as you said it's, uh, it's really great yeah so maybe to switch gears a little bit maybe looking a bit at the future like what do you think is is really needed for us um, as we face this increasing amount of information but how to keep benefiting from it and, and turn it into actual knowledge so you know one of the things our brains have to do in real time so this is something that we can learn from the way we deal with other things and that is to how to discern how to distinguish how to filter what's important one of our recent hacks is to use algorithms to to search through the needle in the haystack so in terms of both our algorithms in other words our technical solutions but also in terms of our you know individual efforts it's how to discern how to sift through how to filter the important from the non-important and one of the things I call that is taste some people call it intuition mm. there are some people who have to discern or distinguish very quickly what's a good path and what's a bad path there's different approaches to this some some people say oh you need a better second brain well yeah second brain just it doesn't take very long to overwhelm <laughs> e even the best second brain so another one is okay be less available such as with email and so forth don't get hacked by dopamine hits these are all great approaches to facilitating the solutions to what you just asked Dom mm. which is what do we do with all of this you know the deluge the flood of, of information so of course it's going to be some combination of, of all those approaches so 
What I would do is, I telegraphed earlier that this is not a new problem. Sometimes we can look to culture mm. for solutions to how to deal with this. For instance, by the way, Dom, have you had anyone speak in your series on Plato's Republic? Oh, no, but I love the book, actually. It's so well written. Like, I, I really love it. Yeah. And inspired by his teacher, Socrates, he actually invented a new literary form called the dialogue to be able to express his ideas on that. Mm. But back to the Republic, one of the main topics of the Republic is how do we learn and how do we educate? And in, in Plato's context, which was ancient Athens, people were seen in the context of the polis, right? P-O-L-I-S, which is the, the city-state. And, you know, there's etymology again. When Aristotle said, Aristotle was Plato's student, when Aristotle said man is a political animal, what he's saying is man is a social community-based animal. Guess what we call those now? <laughs> we call those cohorts. <laughs> we call those yeah. we, communities. So we have a, a lot of people bringing to the fore now, bringing in front of us now, yeah. the power of, of community. And likewise, we are noticing how tough it is when we don't have a communitarian right. feeling, yeah. when we don't know how to handle conflict. So the question that Plato was trying to, Plato and Aristotle himself, one of the issues they deal with over and over is, you know, how can we leverage some of the greatest inventions of ancient Greece were the power of rhetoric, mm -hmm. the, the, the use of history, and number one, in my mind, science. They really put science a good foundation. So can you, rhetoric, that's a verbal-based communication, but it's basically about communication. Politics, they had this new model that they had called democracy. This is a new way of coordinating the activity of people and communities. What else did I mention? Science, of course. I forgot the third one, but it doesn't matter. Le learning, learning from history. Right. Yeah. And that is, if you don't have to reinvent the wheel, don't, you know, history is a type of learning. Yeah. History allows you to learn. The only thing that you can learn are things that are available to you for reuse. Yeah. And again, you know, people say, oh, hip-hop's easy. No, bad hip-hop is easy, but great hip-hop is just like any other cultural method. Great hip-hop is hard because what you're trying to do is a great technique. You're taking sound samples and remixing it and using them in, in new ways. And that's what learning is. So, so anyway, I think this, uh, you say going forward, I would say, learn from our learning, learn from culture. Right. That's one way. And, and by the way, it. one of my favorite of all Greek myths is the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. And Theseus, there was something terrible going on at the time. And that is that every year, the uh, mayor of Athens had to send 12 young men 
you can just think teenagers. Twelve teenage girl, uh, young women and twelve teenage young men have may have been six and six. To Minos, to be sacrificed yeah. to the Minos yeah. because of a previous transgression. In other words, it was a political dispute. And the backstory of that is fascinating. But the Minotaur was a monster that was the result of man's and woman's misuse of technology. And he was a monster. Does that sound like anything that's going on today? Technology causes monstrous things happening? Mm. Well, usually what happened then is what happens now. If there's something monstrous as a result of technology, we develop a piece of technology to contain the monster, right? And that's called the labyrinth, right? Labyrinth was designed by a man that we can call the OG, the original gangster technologist uh, <laughs> of all time, and that's Daedalus. Okay, but it still didn't take away the problem, which was that the youth are being sacrificed because of the mistakes of their elders. Does that sound familiar? Does yeah. that sound like climate change, for example? So Theseus was one of these youths, and he was actually the son of the mayor of Athens, and that's Aegeus. And he said, F this, Dad, you won't settle your dispute with Minos. F this, I'm going to Minos and solve this myself, right? Yeah. So he goes there, and he, he knows about the Minotaur, but he doesn't know about the labyrinth. Guess who tells him about the labyrinth? Well, wasn't it the, the daughter of a king or something? The daughter of the king who's sacrificing the youths. So this is like a Romeo and Juliet story. And so she tells him, okay, you may be able to kill the Minotaur, but the labyrinth is so hard, so intricately designed that you'll never get back out. You'll die. Take this thread, take this yeah. ball of yarn, and as you go forward, roll it out and then follow it back. So I'm acting like uh, Socrates here. What does the ball of thread what does the thread trace through the labyrinth represent? I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot. Well, that's an interesting question for sure. I'm not sure. So it's like the way to the evil technology, but I'm not sure what, what, what that would mean. It showed where he was. It's a trace of his path. It's memory. Yeah. It's ah, history. It's That's beautiful. So one of the things that this myth tells me is that if we want to... It's one thing to kill the monster. It's another to survive killing the monster. It's another, yet even better, to get out of the labyrinth and join a nice counterpart, right? Yeah. In, you know, for Theseus, hey, yeah. it was great. Guess who was on the other end? Ariadne. Yeah. So, in other words, this was a social solution. Two people, it was a social problem in that it was a problem of two parties, Minos and Aegeus. It was solved by the next generation, their yeah. children. 
and your enemy's daughter may be the key to the solution. So Theseus, his first instinct was to go in there like Rambo, go in there like Rambo or Dirty Harry yeah. or John Wayne. But the actual solution was more nuanced. So anyway, yeah. that's just an example to show where culture and history can help us get out of the current pickle. The, the one other thing I will mention related to that is, well, the first easiest one is that it might be like a game of Frogger, where it's not yeah. going to be a direct path. Yeah. That we're going to have to hop on some two logs forward, one log back, that sort of thing. But it's just a reminder that beware of techno-utopias, because, you know, Daedalus thought that he was going to have the perfect solution to this problem, which was designing the labyrinth. But the other part of the problem was that there was somebody else who used the labyrinth, namely Minos, for his purposes. There's always a Minos. There's always a Minos, and there's always an Aegeus who doesn't have the courage to make the right solution. But there's also always a Theseus, a young person, who says, F this, I'm going to try. And then there's always an ally. There are always Mm. allies, and they come in interesting shapes. I mean, Ariadne, the son of your enemy, or excuse me, the daughter of your enemy, is she an obvious solution to conquering the Minotaur? Is she a tech genius? Did she have a high-tech solution to getting out of the um, labyrinth? No, it's a, it's a simple, elegant solution. Yeah. So anyway, I'm really tickled by that story. And I go back to it over and over. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I think it ties it very nicely back to, to where we began. So that's like a, a good place to end this. It's and perfect. It's really great. And one question I always ask is, who should I interview next for this series? Boy, who should you interview next? The easiest answer is, I will think about that. There are, of course, a lot. I actually have a good answer. All right. I don't know her personally, but I follow her on Twitter. She's a gamer. And she's a designer, and she's uh, really good at Twitter. And uh, you might reach out to her. Let's see. Her name, I know her Twitter handle. It's Chapel Tracker. And that cool. Chapel is her last name. All right. Yeah, that's so, how this one's cool. I'll, uh... So I think because gamers and designers, don't you think they're onto something? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> a, I'll get in touch with her. And, then, and I'll, so, and I'll so, send you the yeah. name too. Perfect. Yeah, so then if uh, people want to uh, find out more about you, maybe uh, get in touch. What's the best way for them uh, to do that? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter. That's the easiest way. And my Twitter thread is is sort of a mixed bag. So if you see some weird stuff, it's just what was tickling me on that (laughs) particular day. Awesome. All right, Dan, thank you very much for the interview. It's my pleasure. Great to see you. And and I love following what you're doing with with learning. I'm learning a lot. Thanks a lot, Dan.